Welcome to Three Right Turns, the podcast where we try to figure out what's fucked up in society and fix it. This week's episode is the flip side, the last week's Star Trek Republican Ferengi Democrat, a.k.a. my problems with leftist politics. I want to stick this week to mostly economic themes and uh, problems because I have other structural issues with the discourse that uh, happens frequently in leftist progressive spaces. But uh, we'll get to all those things in good time. Before I started, I want to thank everybody uh, for their heed to my call to action to share this podcast. Thanks for all the great feedback. The podcast traffic was up at 50% from the first week, which is amazing. Obviously, the podcast is resonating with people, and that's great. But I also think there's lots and lots of you all out there sharing and talking it up around social spaces and in real life. And I've gotten uh, anecdotal evidence of that. And then, again, again the, the growth of the podcast. So I can't thank you enough for your efforts. Um, I really appreciate it. It feels good to see uh, the, the hard work paying off. Before I get to the main topic, the Ferengi Democrats, I wanted to put out a reminder for everybody in the United States to register for the primaries. Primary voting is coming up really quick. I think the first states uh, are starting in like February and March. It's a shame, but the U.S. voting turnout averages for the past several elections is just in the mid 50s percent. I mean, that's that's really sad. And I don't want to beat people up that haven't voted or have abstained from voting in the past because I think there's a lot of systemic reasons for that. I don't think that voting is at 50 percent because, you know, people just are uh, shrugging at their civic duty. I think there's a lot that we could do in the United States to make voting easier, which I plan on discussing and advocating for in the future. I also think there's a lot of kind of systemic mechanical issues which make people think that their votes aren't worth anything. And a lot of times your vote is worth less than a citizen in a different state. And that sucks. The winner take all nature of the electoral college, the two party system forcing us to constantly vote for the lesser of two evils rather than candidates we're passionate for. But you know, sitting back and bitching about the way things are, will take us exactly as far as we are now. So register to vote. If you complain that the candidates suck, the primaries are where we select those candidates. So a lot of these primary deadlines are coming up fast, especially in the early primary states. Uh, people might say, Aaron, I live in a super red state and my vote doesn't matter. Bullshit. First off, if you're only worried about things happening at a federal uh, election level, you're doing democracy wrong. Local elections and state level elections are super important. Just this past November and uh, our local election, there were five different tax levies on my ballot. There were ones for elder care, mental health, public transportation, education. And if I hadn't bothered to show up, who knows how many of those would have passed, how many of them would have failed. Uh, judges, school board officials, sheriffs, incredibly important things that hardly anyone participates in. Some of the local elections had less than like 500 people voting in them around here. I mean... You get a few dozen friends and family members registered to vote, get them primed for the issues and the candidates, and you can take back your city, take back your town. And with 50% turnout, with the right issues and the right candidates, you just never know what will happen. And I think part of the reason that people don't participate in these local elections is it's intimidating to know what you're doing. Like at the presidential level, by the time November rolls around, pretty much everybody has a good idea of the candidates and where they stand. But how do you find out about these judges? How do you find out about these school board members? There aren't these massive commercial buys. There aren't editorial endorsements. But fortunately, there's a lot of great resources out there. 
The one I personally like to use is vote411.org. Uh, it is ran by the League of Women Voters, and while it's officially nonpartisan, it does tend to support progressive causes, campaign finance reform, universal health care, abortion rights, climate change action. Um, but they're nonpartisan and they don't take a stand for any uh, particular party. There's also vote.org, which is also pretty good and, and more strictly nonpartisan, um, just aiming at uh, getting people registered and, and getting people informed on the candidates. Both of those sites allow you to check your registration status and find out how to register and, if possible, register online. You can also find out ballot information uh, and where to, you can go to vote. I do my research on vote411.org, and it's really easy to go and put in your name and your address, and it generates you a ballot and shows you where all the candidates are, and it gives you their statements on their issues and their affiliations and the endorsements they have, and you can check which one you want to vote for, and then print that thing out, and it feels really good when I roll into my precinct, and I've got that stack of paper, and I'm ready to go, and it would be quicker and easy to mail my ballot in, and I know a lot of places allow early mailing um, and just mailing votes in general, but you know, I like showing up on voting day. I like seeing who's showing up. I like to see how big the crowds are. I like to flex on the haters. I like to get my sticker. Did you know that they give out stickers? I think in all 50 states, they give out stickers. I was actually looking last night uh, on a, I think an Instagram story where someone had collected like all the stickers from all the 50 states and it's, it's awesome. Yeah. Get out there, get a, get a sticker. And you kind of got to keep on your toes because it's been popular of late to clear just millions of people off of voting rolls and change requirements for registration and to close down polling locations. And you'll never guess the type of people who are disproportionately affected by these changes. But still, go register to vote and then go and make sure you vote. I uh, just want to give a little reminder on that and might give uh, further reminders as we get closer to the primaries and closer to the general. But go register, go vote. Last time, I talked about how Star Trek was a force that kind of led me like a beacon into certain moral and philosophical directions, and mostly progressive ones. But as I tried to explain to our friend Fruit Basket Gazer last week, I stopped short of advocating for socialism. In America, due to lots of Cold War propaganda, the subject of socialism has been, for, throughout my life, radioactive. But it feels like we're coming up on the half-life of that radioactivity. Democratic socialists like Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez have been gaining in popularity. And like I said last week, it's pretty obvious that in Star Trek, some form of full-blown space-based communism or socialism seems to have ushered in some form of utopia where material needs and wants are no longer a major concern. And that sounds great. But Star Trek also has the Ferengi. Now, the Ferengi were a race of beings first introduced in the next generation, intended as a primary antagonist of the new show. But unfortunately, they were super hilarious and non-threatening, and they were later supplanted by more serious and ominous threats, such as the Romulans and the Borg. But they stuck around for comedic effect and as occasional commentary on kind of 20th century attitudes towards things. And they really came into their own during the run of Deep Space Nine, as we were introduced to characters like Quark, who ran a bar and several quasi-legal and outright illegal operations and schemes from within it. Ferengi were explicitly conservative and capitalists. Their profit motive was essentially their only form of governing morality. 
Their code of law was known as the rules of acquisition. Here's a sample. Rule 18, a Ferengi without profit is no Ferengi at all. Rule 111, treat people in your family like debt. Exploit them. Rule 211, employees are the rungs and the ladder of success. Never hesitate to step on them. And even though Quark's family was a slightly heretical Ferengi, they were still Ferengi. His brother Rom started a union, and Quark's nephew Nog eventually joined Starfleet. But Nog didn't completely turn his back on his heritage. Let me play a clip for you of Jake Sisko, a privileged son of a Starfleet officer, trying to bum money off of Nog. Come on, Nog. No, why not? It's my money, Jake. If you want to bid at the auction, use your own money. I'm human. I don't have any money. It's not my fault your species decided to abandon currency-based economics in favor of some philosophy of self-enhancement. Hey, watch it. There's nothing wrong with our philosophy. We work to better ourselves and the rest of humanity. What does that mean exactly? It means... It means we don't need money. Well, if you don't need money, then you certainly don't need mine. Get your own goddamn money, Jake. Nog busting Jake's balls aside, honestly, I had a lot of questions about Starfleet's lack of money. Like Worf and Data when they would buy wedding presents for Keiko and Miles O'Brien. I get that they were replicated, but how does that work? How was the energy provided or rationed? Could they replicate a grand piano? Like a marble bathtub? How, how many replications are you allowed every day? Per week? Per year? Is there a limit? If there's no money, how does the Federation decide between building a galaxy-class starship and building a school? Even if these are all free, how do you allocate resources? There's got to be a limit to resources, or else they just replicate a million starships when the Borg or Dominion came calling and kicked their ass. If there's no money, there's no price, and without price, how do you decide what the true cost of producing anything is? Picard's family owns this massive estate and vineyard in France, how can one family own such a huge parcel of pristine land? What if another family wanted to start a vineyard? Are they just shit out of luck? How does Captain Sisko's father on Earth run some Creole restaurant? How do his customers pay? Why does he do it? Why do his waiters work for him? Is this just like a weird hobby for all of them? Last episode, we talked about the various ways that capitalism can fail. It allows a very small percentage of the population to amass wealth, often not through merits or fair competition, and then use this wealth to buy policy and politicians to thus maintain their power. It's also lousy at allocating resources to things like healthcare and education. Who is in the market for cancer treatment right now? What sets the market value on that? If you don't have cancer, the treatment's worth nothing. If you have cancer, the treatment's invaluable. But damn near the whole world runs on capitalism, and it's pretty undeniable that capitalism has raised more people out of poverty, led to higher rates of illiteracy and education, and has people living longer, healthier lives than ever before. But there's also a downside. Three billion people on this planet still live in poverty. Some 1.3 billion live in extreme poverty, making less than a dollar per day. The Industrial Revolution brought us cheaper goods and services, but it also brought us child labor, unsafe working conditions, people working 12 to 16 hour days for six to seven days out of the week. Pretty wretched conditions. And these aren't relics of the old Industrial Revolution. These are things that still are happening around the world. Things, this, this misery that we've outsourced to other countries. And we see the gap between the haves and have nots keeps growing wider. 
people constantly look for better ways to do things. That's one of the great things about people. And people think that there has to be a better, a more fair way to divide resources. And one of the ways people have historically experimented with doing that is with socialism. Now, what is socialism? My God, you think that would be an easy fucking question to ask, but I found it to be pretty tricky, as one thing I've come to appreciate about socialists is they come in lots of different flavors, and all the flavors except the one they like best taste like shit. Now, Karl Marx, and I really mean Karl Marx this time, this is not an Eisenhower bait and switch, identified a basic contradiction in capitalism. Capitalists forever sought to lower prices and increase profits, but... They needed labor to produce their products. They also needed markets comprised of people with resources to afford to consume their goods. Now, Marx felt that this tension could never be resolved. It was a case of a house divided against itself. The capitalists who owned the means of production, the factories, the machines, the land, would attempt to squeeze ever more profit from their workers, and the workers would resent this exploitation, which would lead to poor quality of work, alienation from their career and craft, and to the extent that society would allow for them to be used and abused without any kind of relief, alienate them from society. But wait, you say, the capitalists need the workers, so the workers should just organize and demand better working conditions, refusing to work until their demands are met. The problem, as a socialist would see it, is that any victories the workers would win would necessarily be short-lived, because the pressure to make profits would instantly have the capitalists working to reverse those wins as soon as they can. Since the capitalists have more money, they also have more political power, and with this they also effectively control the means of coercion, the police and the military. So the workers are getting fucked from both ends. The system working as intended means that there's this constant downwards pressure on their wages, and the owners of the means of production can use their relationship with media, politicians, and law enforcement to suppress, divide, and frustrate the workers' attempts to organize to get better conditions on their behalf. And this is why Marx thought that socialism would be the inevitable result of this seemingly eternal struggle between the classes. He thought that as capitalist countries became wealthier and more educated, that this class consciousness would grow. Workers would eventually organize not just in single factories or in single sectors, but across the whole economies in a series of general strikes, perhaps even revolutions, and seize the means of production for themselves since the workers will always be more powerful than the capitalists just in terms of, of manpower and numbers. Supposedly, once the workers would collectively own the means of production, they could then share the full value of what they got from their labor rather than just a tiny percentage of it, the bulk of which the capitalists kept. The eventual goal was to remake society without class and without money. So as long as you had money, there'd always be a way to game the system to get an advantage, and then the class struggle would continue. If society was organized to produce what is used rather than to produce excess for profit, that pressure would be gone and mankind would be liberated forever. Huzzah! We have arrived at the Star Trek utopia. Or if you're Christian, we've lived up to the ideals espoused by Jesus' apostles in Acts chapter 4, verse 32. All believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And hey... I think that makes a lot of sense. So what is the downside? And here is where it gets tricky, because if you want to know the truth about any kind of organization, whether that be a company, a religion, a political philosophy, you can't just ask members of the in-group. 
And of course, you also just can't ask members of the out group too. You're going to get biased answers no matter which side of the equation you ask questions to. And what I've been doing these last three years or so is trying to figure out what is actually true and what philosophy that I want to subscribe to. And not just now in the, in the present day, like I said last time, I also want to have my eye towards the future because we might not have the technology, we might not have the social structures necessary to achieve some kind of utopia today. But again, what are we aiming for? What are we working towards? Is it consistent with where we want to go? Now, normally, I try to rely as best as possible on expert opinions. Is the Earth's climate changing? Well, let's see what climate scientists say. Oh, well, 97% of them say it is changing and that human activity is a large driver of it. Okay, I guess that's a fact. Are vaccines safe? 99.9% of scientists and medical doctors agree they are safe and against the alternative of just rolling the dice with the likes of measles and polio, they're vital. Seems like a fact to me. Are GMO crops safe and non-harmful? Well, the scientific consensus says that genetically engineered crops currently available to the public pose no greater health risks or environmental concerns than their non-engineered counterparts. And the consensus is roughly as strong as that on climate change. So that is another fact. But on economics, the consensus is that capitalism is better for generating wealth and innovation than socialism. The debate as it is, is how much regulation, taxation, and social welfare to put upon capitalism to optimally provide growth and stability to keep society self-sustaining. But not so fast, socialists would say. For generations, most universities have been in capitalist societies. Generations of capitalist professors have taught capitalist students who then go out and do capitalism. It's a lot like asking a Jehovah's Witness whether being a Jehovah's Witness is a good idea. I mean, they're going to say yes. If you ask anybody outside, they're going to say no. Um, how do you get the true out-of-group opinion if there isn't an out-of-group to ask? If the whole world are Jehovah's Witnesses, where would you go to get the opinion that maybe being a Jehovah's Witness isn't a great idea? I find this counter-argument not terribly persuasive, and I'll explain why. Let's look at other philosophies that have competed against daunting odds and emerged as uh, correct, like evolution. Evolution won out over creationism, not because it was popular. When it was first conceived, the entire world believed in some form of religion, and this part of the world it came out of believed very strongly in Christianity. It won out in science and academia because it was proven to be correct. Its predictions were more useful. Uh, its insights were more insightful than the competing theories. Another example is feminism. You'd be hard-pressed to find people working in any historical or social science today advocating for more patriarchy and less participation of women in society, despite the fact that feminism was spawned from societies where universities, industries, and politics were dominated by men for centuries, even millennia. So why should economics be any different? To some extent, it isn't, because Marxism has certainly impacted how people have understood economics. I mean, he still studied today and has impacted all these economic disciplines, but it hasn't led to this widespread advocation for socialist economic policies. Despite having a similar amount of time to percolate through the world as, say, women's studies, why hasn't socialism gained more traction? When I listen to some of the world's leading Marxist economists, like Dr. Richard Wolff, 
sure, he's excellent at pointing out the very obvious and numerous flaws of capitalism. But what he actually advocates for as an alternative seems to be more democratization of the workplace, workers organizing, unionization, and the like. None of those are incompatible with existing within capitalism. Another argument against socialism is that where it's been tried, it hasn't been a spectacular success. The Soviet Union collapsed under its own weight less than a century after it got off the ground. It had a deplorable human rights and environmental record. I mean, I saw Chernobyl this year. It wasn't great. And that's not to say that life in America was better across the board. In America, it seems like the misery was concentrated among minorities, whereas in the Soviet Union, the misery was perhaps more evenly spread across the population. But even still, the Soviet Union didn't have a spectacular record of protecting its minority classes. Homosexuality, for example, was effectively legalized with the overthrow of the Tsar in 1917. But Soviets under Joseph Stalin recriminalized being gay in 1933. And in the intervening years, it seems that gays were heavily stigmatized and often lost their employment and position in society if they ever came out. I mean, what the fuck kind of solidarity and comradeship is that? Now, socialist apologists contend that we should cut the Soviet Union some slack because it was the first experiment of its kind. It transformed the previously feudal agrarian society into a powerful industrial society in a single generation. It raised education and literacy across the board. It was then forced to defend itself just a few short years after it started from a brutal Nazi invasion and a grueling Cold War where capitalist societies across the world tried their best to cut off, isolate, and starve it. And there is certainly something to that argument. You look at Western interference and similar revolutions in Central and South America, Europe, Africa, Asia. It's not pretty, and it seems like the deck has always been stacked against them. But still... If it's a superior system, why aren't they winning? What good would it do for, say, the United States to restructure under socialism if in a few generations some fascist capitalist society outcompetes us, kicks our asses in, and takes over? I don't feel like socialists seriously consider that issue. There's also economic issues. Like I said earlier, there's many great arguments for socializing certain markets in our society, healthcare infrastructure, transportation, segments where market pressures to make things cheaper and more efficient run up against very real public health and safety concerns. But do I want a centrally planned economy where the government or some other body decides on what kind of shoes to make, what kind of cars to provide, what kind of housing to build, what kind of clothing to provide, and in what quantities? If you look at stories in the Soviet Union, centrally planning the economy led to just a lot of shit shows. Laborers were put to work in areas where they don't have a comparative advantage in. You had farmers being sent to factories, tailors being sent to work in mines, workers who were assigned to lines of production with the wrong tools, leading to widespread shortages and poor quality products. I mean, Profit Motive does a pretty good job of ensuring there's a wide array of products that, in general, get better in quality even as they become cheaper to produce. I'd like to say that's a result of hard work and innovation, and a lot of it certainly is, but it's also the result of exploiting poorer countries and poorer workers. It's a common line of argument from conservatives to decry environmental regulations in America because we do so much better for China, who doesn't even seem to be trying. But yeah, no shit. When you ship out most of your heavy industry to China, guess where the pollution goes with it? But like I said, profit works. Bad products get outcompeted by good ones. 
bloated and expensive processes are replaced with cheaper and more efficient ones. Without a profit motive to produce, you have some arbitrary system like quotas put in place. And the Soviets had a lot of problems with quotas. For one, workers lie about their production rates. And even when they don't, if you say, set a nail production quota on a number of nails, workers produce a lot of tiny, unusable nails. A nail quota based on weight would encourage workers to produce massive but still unusable nails. And that's why I don't want to socialize the construction of cars, clothing, toilet paper, most consumer goods and services, really. I definitely think there's an argument to be had about how much stuff that we need, but I don't want to live in a five by five cube wearing gray pajamas all day. I like stuff. I like theme parks. I like big budget action films. I like a lot of decadent capitalist pig shit. I think most people do. I don't want to have to stand in line for hours for a loaf of bread. Another question I have is why do socialist societies seem to always end up in authoritarian regimes? I don't think it's necessarily inevitable that socialism goes hand in hand with authoritarianism. It just seems like it does a lot. Again, apologists would like to point out that from the moment it arises, socialist revolutions are opposed, attacked, and infiltrated by capitalist agents trying to destroy it. And I often wonder how America's experiment in democracy would have worked out had the entire world's monarchies banded together to destroy it. I mean, we'd have been toast without France's aid and assistance, right? It's also pretty lucky that the world's monarchies were busy trying to defeat each other over back on the continent, uh, too busy to realize what we were starting. Also, we were protected by this vast ocean that was difficult and costly to cross. It's easy to kind of fuck around with lofty, novel, experimental ideals when you have powerful friends and the world's largest moat protecting you from foreign influences messing with it. But still, I don't think leftists give this idea enough thought. What systems do we need to put in place to keep authoritarian impulses in check as we experiment with social policies? How do we protect ourselves if we reorganize from ruthless capital efficiency to a more equal distribution of resources from outside ruthless capital efficient interventions without resorting to some kind of authoritarian crackdown on dissenting thoughts and opinions? And I don't have the answer for that question. If you're excited to hear it, I just these are questions I think that need to be asked and, and, and addressed. But to be fair, on the other hand, I think we capitalists should try to think about the other side of the equation. We know that markets crash from time to time, even when properly regulated, there will always be externalities that are not accounted for and you'll always have failures in the market. Most of the people listening to this podcast have probably lived through several market crashes, several recessions, periods of stagnation. And each time, people wig the fuck out, saying we can't afford Social Security, we can't afford spending on education, we have to privatize, we have to harness the power of the free market, the yada yada, we have to tighten our belts. And they've been very persuasive, because for 30, 40, 50 years, that's exactly what we've been doing. And we've gone past lean and mean to being skinny and pissed. The wealthy and powerful spend big money on think tanks to produce policy just waiting for the next downturn to convince people shitting their pants that the answer is to fuck over their neighbors rather than hold the people on top accountable for these failures. How do we keep that from happening? The other question is, in a socialist society, how do you get people to do the jobs that need to be done? And here I don't mean it's the standard herder, people will just sit home and jerk off all day if they don't have to work. 
I don't think that rings true to my understanding of people. I think people want to be productive. I think people want to make things. They want to help people. They want to improve things. They want to make their surroundings nicer. They want to invent things. And it's not hard to find people who want to serve on the deck of the USS Enterprise, right? It's exciting. It's sexy. It's hard to find people wanting to pick up Starfleet's trash. How do we make sure that these less desirable jobs get done? And I think we need answers both now and in the future, because it's easy to kind of hand wave and say, well, a lot of these sanitation, construction, manufacturing type jobs can probably be automated over the next century or two. But social work, working in nursing homes, special education, those are really hard jobs, a lot of thankless work that nevertheless needs to be done. So how do we get people to do it? Do we just order them to? Do we draft them? Do you serve a period of time in a nursing home and then you rotate out like a tour of duty? I don't know. But I'm honestly surprised at how little thought there is into advancing the ideals of socialism by socialists. There's a lot of apology about socialism. Like a lot of it goes, well, what do you expect? Marx thought it would be implemented first in the most advanced, wealthy, and educated countries. Instead, socialism was often implemented in the poorest countries without the benefit of a strong education and infrastructure and was birthed out of violent revolutions that more often than not led to purges of the wealthy and educated. And it's kind of a miracle that things didn't turn out worse. But when I look at the state of the proponents of socialism today, I see mostly a well-educated, mostly middle class, a very white and non-oppressed majority espousing the evils of capitalism. But where is the sweat going into how to affect change, how things should look in this socialist society? And the leftist spectrum that I'm kind of closest to, there's a lot of talk about worker co-ops and unions, and I'm super into those things, and I'm excited about exploring them. But it's not revolutionary stuff, and it's not clear to me how these localized solutions will come together to solve deeper systemic and societal issues. And as you move further left, you start getting people talking about revolution, even accelerationists, which are people who think we should hasten uh, the how bad capitalism is to make it all fail even quicker. And that's well and good, but revolutions tend to affect weaker segments of society disproportionately. Minorities, women, children, the elderly. And it just seems to me if you're a well-off, well-educated 20 to 30-something white guy, you should care about that and maybe want to see some more orderly transition. Maybe have answers that make sense to a person like myself that are open to your ideas. I just want to hear them and I hope they make sense. But instead, I see the opposite. I see a bunch of guys who want to reduce all of society's problems to class and ignore the real problems of racism and sexism that exist. I mean, I had that phase too back in high school. You know, man, it's not about race or sex. The only color that matters is green. And it's not that that's untrue. It's just that it's not the whole truth. And when you talk like that, it tends to piss off women and minorities that are living in the real world and realize that it's not just about money. There's actually underlying issues here. There's actually underlying prejudice and bias. And I think, as I've said many times before, we need everyone united to change the system. And we're not going to do that by trying to tackle class issues to the exclusion of all else. You're just not going to inspire the mass movement you need by telling people that they're going to have to wait in line to get their needs and rights taken care of and protected. But I think this is another thing I can kind of help with, because I think this year has been interesting. 
I've been keeping an eye on certain online trends that I've been interested for almost a decade now. And one of the exciting things for me in the last few years is see this pushback against a lot of like conservative talking points on online spaces. The internet used to be a lot wider, a lot more conservative, a lot more libertarian. And I started to see in the last few years some real authoritative, well-researched, well-presented pushback to the status quo on the subject of feminism, LGBT rights, racism. I've learned a few things about trans people, and that's great. But most of the stuff that's come out in the last few years is stuff that uh, was kind of review material for me or things that kind of crystallized things I already knew or presented them in a very succinct uh, form and fashion. But in 2019, I saw this debate shift from kind of like these dunking on the right wing types, kind of like what I was doing with Fruit Basket Gazer last week, uh, to debating the merits of socialism versus capitalism. And I was really excited to see this happen because this is where I was at with the debate. Like, you know, where should I go next? But I was really amazed to see how kind of poorly thought out and prepared many of these leftist types were for what I considered basic questions about their ideology. And I was really disappointed to see that instead of learning from these experiences and coming up with new lines of arguments and working on persuasion, that this leftist community would often declare the person that just rhetorically kicked their ass to be a crypto conservative or reactionary and dismiss all of their comments and concerns. They come up with new labels like alt centrists, a play on the alt-right term coined to rebrand racists and fascists. Neoliberal is another one. Instead of like coming back with succinct points, they would insist that you have to read three or four or five books on, and not just light books, heavy books on socialist theories to properly understand things. And, and that's just not how I see how an expert should be able to explain a situation to a layperson. Yeah, you might not be able to get the whole truth. Uh, and you might be able to have a full understanding about a matter, but an expert should be able to break things down to a layperson in a way that they can understand. So that sucks, and I wish there was better champions of socialist thought out there, and maybe there is. If you know any good ones, I'm all ears. Send it in to 3RT at swizzbold.com. And I'm familiar with others, like I mentioned Dr. Wolf. Uh, I think Noam Chomsky is actually pretty good, and who boy... If you'd have told 24-year-old me that I'd say that, he'd never believe you. But, you know, lots of bad news for 24-year-old me on a lot of fronts. But like I said, I feel like these guys are a lot better for pointing out flaws of capitalism, suggesting what I see is pretty common-sense policies of reform and regulation than a true socialist revolution. But I also think... If I'm being honest, I see a problem with some of the alt-centrists, quote-unquote, in these debates, too. My favorite one is this guy named Destiny, which reminds me so much of my 30-year-old self, it's crazy. It's Midwestern, conservative background, religious background, little formal education, and he's 30, so hey, that all checks out. We're pretty similar in terms of our philosophical makeup. And he's really smart, and he's got these ability to construct and deconstruct arguments on the fly and under heavy opposition. I think it's incredible, and it's exciting to watch him debate. But he also has this like killer instinct to go for his opponent's throat instead of like stepping back and collaborating and understanding. It's like, oh, you're a syndical anarchist socialist, eh? Well, how would your worker-run factory combat racism if the factory contained a representative breakdown of races in America? And when the syndical anarchist socialist gets flustered, it goes downhill from there. I mean, I don't know. I, I have this idea that maybe I can help be some kind of diplomat between these two sides of the left in America. Because I used to have that same kind of killer instinct myself. But 
I don't know, maybe it got burnt out after making an ass out of myself for the first half of my life. And I'm, I'm more willing to listen and to help out and collaborate in a conversation than to try to win. Or maybe I'm just fooling myself. But I feel like in America, at least, this junction between what's essentially moderate and centrist Democrats and the more leftist ones, which are almost not represented at all in American po- politics. I think that's where the really interesting conversations are taking place, and I want to get involved in that area. So we'll see. All right. I actually have a piece of feedback that I want to consider for this week. Uh, you can send feedback in to 3RT at SwizzBolt.com. Josh H. wanted to probe me on my stance that billionaires are bad. I asked for, is there an argument for billionaires last week? And Josh H. came back and said, whether or not we should cap wealth is not a matter of need or deserving. It depends upon whether the benefits of doing so outweigh the cost. This is why we repealed prohibition. It was just obvious that the benefits of making booze illegal didn't outweigh the cost. This is why weed should be legal, etc. All right. So far, so good. What are the benefits of capping wealth so that there are no billionaires? We could use taxes for the social good. We wouldn't have insanely rich people who could use their wealth in ways that are harmful. But what are the costs of doing so? In the long run, you can't seize wealth without destroying, at least in part, the incentive to obtain it. This could lead to fewer goods and services that people genuinely believe will improve their lives. Okay. I don't know. I'm not sure if I mentioned this last time, but I think when you have a billion dollars, we're just way, way past what you would consider a normal incentive to obtain that dollar. You're far past satisfying your hierarchies of need. You're far past the esteem and adoration of your fellow man. You've moved on to some form of I don't know, pathologic need to compete on some kind of score that you're racking up or you've become some sort of self-sustaining sorcerer's apprentice type thing where you have so much money and so much investment across so many sectors that there's no way you'll ever lose any of it. The only way you could is with some kind of total collapse of society. So let's say you set the marginal tax rate on every dollar past $100 million to 99%. Will a person like Jeff Bezos continue to amass wealth to try to get that 1% return on his sweat equity? I mean, I guess my question to you is, why wouldn't he? What can you do with a billion dollars that he couldn't do with a hundred million? And, and this isn't rhetoric. I mean, I genuinely don't know. It seems to me like these entrepreneurial types would easily spend $99 to make a hundred. So they'd still be able to measure their dicks. They'd just be measuring their hundred millionaire sized dicks instead of hundred billionaire sized dicks. And they could still spend money on political causes. It's just that putting $10 million into a campaign would actually hurt now. Like, if I gave a 1000 bucks to Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders, that would be a huge bite into my family's livelihood. It would significantly impact, like, our ability to take a vacation that year, uh, how bright our Christmas is. But Jeff Bezos or Bill Gates, I mean... They can give $10 million to any political campaign they want, and it's like me kicking in seven bucks. And I actually did the math on that for a direct comparison. I would gladly buy political policies for seven bucks. That sounds pretty fucking rad and fun. And if it doesn't work out, who gives a shit? I'll try again in four years. But I mean, I get your point, And I wonder if there's other ways in society that we could structure some kind of incentive to reward people like... This might sound dumb, but is there some way we could start handing out some kind of medal for being an economic powerhouse? Like we have these 
this whole host of medals to recognize martial achievements from Bronze Star all the way to Medal of Honor. And they get a lot of societal respect for this. Could we do something similar for like paying taxes? Could we replace monetary recognition with societal recognition? Because the thing that sucks now is that it seems like they get both for just a pittance. I don't know. Maybe people have other ideas. But back to Josh's argument. Uh, his second point, he wants to warn me this isn't a slippery slope argument. This bad thing will or is even likely to happen, so we shouldn't do it. But there is a non-zero risk, and a risk is a cost, that the people in charge of this new power of seizing wealth beyond the threshold will use it in a way that suits their personal or political interests. So to me, this ties into the conversation we had earlier about uh, authoritarians and other forms of tyranny. In the United States, our government isn't perfect, but we do have mechanisms to promote the people that we want to see as leaders and remove the ones that we don't want to see. And it's a democratic mechanism, voting. But if you think about it, our workplaces are among the most undemocratic institutions that we have in society, and they're incredibly powerful. Companies can decide to pollute a river, to put in place a policy that will strip millions of people of their retirement and pensions, manipulate markets to deadly effects, and if they get caught, their punishment very rarely fits the crime. Very rarely are individuals held accounted for. Usually it's a corporate slap on the, on the wrist. It's a $7 fine. Who are the ultra-wealthy accountable to? By what mechanism can we hold them accountable? Why are we afraid of duly elected tyrants, but we're not afraid of unelected corporate tyrants? And another question I ask in kind of a just a fair question type of way is what do you think is easier to solve, government corruption or corporate corruption? I guess in my mind, it's always been easier to solve government corruption because we have more power and transparency into our governments, whereas with corporations, they're shrouded in mystery and opaqueness by design. I don't know. Maybe you have a different uh, opinion, Josh, or anybody else. Uh, feel free to write me back and we'll talk about it. Your third point the people with either the wealth beyond the threshold or with the capacity to obtain that amount of wealth may leave other countries and take with them their drive, ambition, ingenuity, and all the things that come along with those things that we actually care about, such as jobs, innovation, etc. I mean, they might, but America is a pretty nice place to live for a wealthy person. If they're looking at other developed societies, they're going to run into lots of high taxes of various amounts wherever they go. I mean... Look at the Panama Papers. Seriously, go out and look at them. This is happening all around the globe already, where the wealthy are living in societies and taking advantage of its infrastructure, its social order, its security, its resources, while hiding their wealth in countries and banking systems that are little more than thieves' guilds. I mean, we know this. It's a matter of public record, and it has been for years now. So... The threat is that if we do something to stop it, then they'll take the additional step of moving so it'll stop freeloading and squatting in a country that they're not contributing their fair share to. Also, if they leave, we should take a big bite out of them on their way out. You know, going back to my example the last time, if we have this guy in our zombie apocalypse camp, uh, can he just take his billion cans of baked beans off to Negan and the Saviors? If he can, then that sucks. But if we say, all right, you can leave our camp, but you got to leave 999 million cans of beans with us because we protected you. We supported you. We provided you the infrastructure that allowed you to amass these billion cans of beans to begin with. Then everybody wins. We get 999 million cans of beans and they get to go be 
unfettered entrepreneurs with Negan. And they still got a fucking million cans of beans, man. Also, one of the big ideas that I have in this podcast is a lot of these changes are something that we have to work out globally. It can't just be America raising taxes. We have to combat this rising tide of regressive policy globally. Every country has to keep its own side of the fence clean, continue working together, form more and bigger alliances and cooperative zones. I think the ones that do will be much nicer places to live than the ones that don't. And if the rich want to live in enclaves isolated from the rest of the world, then good luck to them. They're still going to need people to protect, serve, and work for them. The Marxist class struggle is still going to exist. There's nowhere they can go, exploit people, and have the exploited be okay with it for long. I mean, that's what I believe. And, and maybe we're eventually going to get down to a point where we come down to fundamental disagreements between how we think people believe and behave. I don't know. We'll see. Josh continues, the idea that there are people in the world with tens of billions of dollars is scary to me. That's a stupid amount of money, but it's not obvious to me that the benefits here outweigh the costs. This, of course, is in part because there are many different types of costs and types of benefits, and weighing those things one against the other is why politics is hard and why we have to yell at each other on the internet. Hey, Josh, I agree, and I appreciate you struggling with me, man. But that's it for me this week. Please send in feedback and your struggles to me at 3RT at SwizzBold.com, and we will talk about it. Please rate and review my show wherever you're listening to this podcast. Please follow us at SwizzBold on all the social medias. You can also follow me at AronHubbardBM on Twitter if you are inclined to do so. Next time, I'll be back for a special holiday feedback-only edition where I'll be working through all the great takes and questions I've received on Three Right Turns thus far. Really appreciate everyone listening. Until next time, never forget the 10th rule of acquisition. Greed is eternal. Have a great week, everybody. See you back in 14 days. 